as we are standing either in body or spirit, we come before God's word and very likely we're doing what Jesus and the disciples would have done. They would have recited the Shema, what Jesus, of course, made the basis of uh, the great commandment. So remembering our uh, Hebraic roots, we'll do um, in uh, Hebrew first. I invite you to follow me and then we'll do it in English together. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture this morning will begin in chapter 15 of Exodus, verse 27, and go through chapter 16, verse 4. Here's the setting. Uh, The people escaped miraculously through the Red Sea, and now they are going on their journey from Egypt. And uh, one of the things that has happened is they've come to a place called Merah, which means bitter, and they can't find any water to drink because the water is bitter. And so uh, God uh, shows Moses a piece of wood. It goes after the people have complained. The wood goes into the water. It becomes sweet. And so we pick up the story there. Uh, They camped at Elam. Um, Make sure I get this right. They came to Elam. I knew they they camped at the end. But they came to Elam where there were uh, 12 springs and 70 palm palm trees. And they camped there uh, by the water. Then the whole uh, Israelite community set out from Elam and went to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left out of Egypt. And the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Uh, the Israelites said, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, where we sat by pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve to death this entire assembly. And then God said to Moses, I will bring down bread from heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. One of my favorite authors, Brene Brown, has a new book coming out in September. It's entitled Braving the Wilderness. Another of my favorite authors, uh, consultant Gil Rendell from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a couple of years ago wrote a book for the church called Journey Through the Wilderness. And then I have a good friend who uh, is a United Methodist bishop, and he has a blog that's entitled, Away in the Wilderness. One of the great things that the biblical faith does for people like you and me is it gives us a wonderful metaphor to describe the times in which we live. Because as Bob Dylan said years and years ago, the times, they are a-changing. And, and the speed of change seems to be increasing more and more. And it becomes like a wilderness for us. Some of the definitions that uh, theologians have used for wilderness is it's the place between the bondage of Egypt and the promised land of Canaan. You're in that in-between. Others have seen it as the in-between space between the promise of God and the fulfillment of God. One of my favorite definitions is the wilderness is the place where our support systems no longer work the way that they used to. 
Some years ago, William Bridges wrote a book called Transitions, which described basically the same thing. He said, a lot of us uh, are like people who have left one shore on a journey and we haven't yet reached the other shore. And the difficulty in our life is not what we left or what we're going to. The difficulty is the transition in between. Because things are transitioning quickly. Our world is changing. We've seen the changes in politics and we've seen the changes in economy and the kind of jobs that uh, that now are uh, available. And uh, we've seen it, of course, in healthcare. care. Uh, we've seen it in values that a lot of us uh, assumed were standard values that maybe aren't so standard anymore. Uh, others of us have seen it even change in the church. Uh, uh, sports fans have seen it in the Western Conference of the NBA. It's become like an arms race. I mean, things are changing and they change quickly. And of course, social media changes more quickly than all those before us, uh, before the others I've named. Uh, last night I, was, I had dinner with a guy from my very first youth group when I was first a pastor. You can tell how long ago it, it was because he's now 49 years old. And he was telling me of the importance of being on Snapchat so he could communicate with his high school daughter and his college-age daughter. And he signed me up before we left dinner. Things are changing, and they change quickly. Now, what I have to offer you this morning is a theory. That in the midst of rapidly and intensely changing times, it's going to feel like wilderness for us and for others. And what I learned from the Bible is the further you get from Egypt, the deeper you get into the wilderness, the more intense become the criticism, the grumblings, and the incivility. The farther you are from your old home and from what you knew, the more difficult the relations between people become. And I think we can illustrate this in chapters 15 through 17 in Exodus this morning. Uh, because they're about what happens when the people don't have uh, good water to drink, when they don't have uh, food or bread to eat, and then when they don't have meat to eat. And then again in chapter 17 when they are without water to drink. Now, parenthetically, let me say two things real quickly. If Westerners were writing the Bible, we'd write it all chronologically and we'd get the dates right. But the only date we have in here is that basically this, this episode that I talked about this morning took place six weeks after they had left Egypt. Um, when Easterners organized, they organized thematically. And so the theme is the grumbling, the complaining, and God's uh, response of provision. So I can't tell you that all these things took place in direct order, but what seems obvious to me is that the events grew in their intensity the further into the desert that they got. I think you can establish that. Let me show you. In chapter 15, first thing that happens is they don't have good water to drink, and so they come to a place with bitter water. And we're told that the people complained against Moses. Okay, got that? People complained to Moses. In our story this morning, when they are hungry and they don't have bread, we find the whole community complains against Moses and Aaron. Do you see how it's expanded? And then if you get to chapter 17, uh, the last story in the, in the series where they're out of water again, what you find out is the people aren't, the whole people aren't complaining anymore. Now they're arguing with Moses and Aaron with the result that they want to stone them to death. Do you see how it's intensified? And then the very last sentence is, is, that wraps up the section is, 
that the people, that there was a name of the place, it took a name, and basically it means, is the Lord with us or not? So they start complaining against Moses, they add Aaron, and pretty soon they get God into the picture. They start with just a few people, um, some people complaining, now everybody's complaining. Now they're arguing and they're about to stone someone. The deeper they got into the wilderness, the further from what they knew, the more intense the incivility. That's my theory. Now, if I'm right, I want to give you a warning. Buckle your seatbelts. The days in which we live, uh, live, the experience of wilderness is only going to become more intense. Because the pace of change is uh, picking up and uh, becoming even more rapid. And my, my hope this morning is that you don't become one of the grumblers. That you don't become one of the complainers, that I don't become incivil to other people when I am so far from my moorings, so far from where I used to make my home. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to say, is there anything, any hint in the biblical text that can help us be more civil and less complaining in these times of intense change? And I think I found the hint. Going through the work this week of a rabbi whose name is Beno Jacob. Now, the name won't mean anything to you, but I have to tell you a little bit about his story. Uh, he was doing a commentary on Exodus that began in Nazi Germany. Beno's family got him out of Nazi Germany just days before his neighborhood was rounded up and put in a concentration camp. Benno got to London just in time to settle in, continue work on the commentary, and the London Blitz began. And bombs were dropping every night and then soon day and night. And under these conditions, he writes this commentary. Here's what I want to say to you. This man understands wilderness. This man understands change. This man understands difficulty, and this is what he said. He said, if you look at the scripture this morning, you'll notice that even though God gave them sweet water to drink at Marah, there are two words that we teach our children that these people never said. When someone does something for your child, you say to your child, tell the person, thank you. No one says a word. Then they come to Elam, a place of 12 springs and 70 trees. Now, let me tell you just real quick about that. Numbers in the Bible sometimes are not just stand for the literal numbers, but they often are symbolic. So, for example, if hundreds or thousands of people have escaped Egypt, or even hundreds of thousands, they're going to need more than 12 springs. They're going to need more than 70 trees. But 12 is a symbolic number, which means there's enough springs for the whole 12 tribes of Israel. Everybody's got plenty to drink. And 70 shades is 7, which is perfection. 10, which is a number that means completeness, means there's enough shade for everybody. Basically, if I were to describe Elam, I would use the word oasis. God leads them to an oasis. And if you're a child and you've been led to an oasis, what do you say? They don't say a word. In fact, they move from Elam and the next thing they say to mention God is this. If only God had struck us dead in Egypt. Gratitude, I want to suggest to you this morning, is a key to civility and a key to dealing with a rapid change in our world. The ability to say, thank you, God, even though I'm not where I used to be and I've lost a lot of that, thank you for giving me what I did have. Thank you for being with me in the middle of this difficult transition. Thank you. 
Because the price of ingratitude, friends, is just way too high. Ingratitude blinds you to the things that God has done, to, to the presence of God in your midst. As, uh, as we pointed out, the, the only thing that people can do to mention God's name is to say, God, just kill us. That's the only thing they can say, is associate death and God in the same sentence. There's no sense of God being anywhere present in their journey. That's what ingratitude does. It relegates God to somewhere else other than the present. There was a wonderful counselor years ago in New Orleans. His name was Myron Madden, also an author. He said, if you boil it down for the Christian, the essence of despair is relegating God to some other time. The God is some other time and some other place than right here right now and that's what ingratitude does it just pushes god out of the picture and it says what's going on in my stomach right now and how i feel is more important than what god has done so all the wonderful 10 plagues the parting of the red sea the sweetening of water none of that means zip it means zip to the people it's just that they're hungry right now and so the ingratitude moves god out of the picture and it leads to something worse than ingratitude and here's my theory from the Bible this morning. One thing that's worse than ingratitude is nostalgia. You know the definition of nostalgia, right? It's longing for a time that never really was. Because the good old days were never really as good as you remember them. They weren't. I mean, I've been, I don't know if you've been doing this on Sunday night. The Smithsonian Channel has these black and white newsreels that they've colorized. And so it was the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. I was born in the 50s. Those are the good old days, right? Well, if you'll pardon me, I didn't have, I had no idea all the crap that went on in the 50s. And worse, no cable TV. Don't tell me those are the good old days. Nonsense. But nostalgia longs. This is what they said. If only we're back in Egypt. What was the sound I heard? Was that God falling out of heaven? You what? Do you know what I went through to get you out of Egypt? Where you were enslaved for 400 years and you now think that's the good old days? That's what ingratitude will do, friends. It's not a pretty sight, but as we're grateful for what God has done and for God's presence with us, I think... We'll grumble less. We'll be more civil. But now here's my theory. If the times are changing quickly, we're going to be tempted to grumble. But if you're ahead of a family, a classroom, a volunteer association, a small group, a project, a church, a cause, guess what? You're the new Moses and Aaron. And you're going to be the recipients of the grumbling. And you're going to be the recipients of the complaints. And you're going to be the recipients of incivility because people have lost their moorings. What do you do? If it's not too basic this morning, can I just say this? Do what God did. When they complained to God, who had already done all these things for them to get them to this point, God didn't zap them with lightning. At this stage, did not strike them with a plague. God said, okay, you're hungry. Moses, I'll be sending down bread. There are two things I think God does that are helpful to me. First is um, uh, that God does what my grandmother used to tell me when, and when I talked to her about criticism, she'd say, well, now, honey, you need to consider the, you had the same grandmother. <laughs> consider the, and that's what God does. God says, well, look, these people are hungry. I get it. All they've known is 400 years of slavery. I get it. 
They are, depending on which commentator you read, either in the infancy of the, of, as a nation or their, their adolescency as their nation, their adolescence as a nation. But basically, if your two-year-old throws a, a, a tantrum because they're hungry, your response is not to lock them in the room for six hours without food. Your response is, oh, they're hungry. I'll take care of that. God understands where the people are, tries to pay attention to where they're coming from. Because you all know the saying, right? Hurt people hurt people. When people are uncivil, when they complain, when they groan, there's something that's not about you. There's something going on with them. And God is attentive to that. One of the great rabbis uh, before Jesus' day was a man named Hillel. In fact, if you do the research, you'll find that Jesus agreed with Hillel on almost every major religious issue except, except one. And people said the greatness of Hillel was this, that when he was in a religious argument with people, he always cited the person's argument, the other person's argument first, made sure he could state it and understand it before he went to his own. He made an effort to understand the other side. God makes an effort to understand the source. Where is it coming from? The other thing God does is God responds not just with understanding, but God responds with generosity. He said, okay, they're hungry. I'll send them bread from heaven. Now, interestingly, this bread from heaven, uh, some people uh, say that it's uh, the same food that angels eat in heaven. I guess that's like the original angels' food. I'm not sure. Others, though, have an interesting theory. Some rabbis say that when you ate manna, it took on the flavor of whatever your favorite food was. God took care of the people in the wilderness. Imagine all these days of Whataburger in the morning when you wake up. God is patient and yet generous with the complaints of people struggling in a rapidly changing world. And I think that's an example for us. I read the story uh, this past week about a guy who said, um, every year I fly from Atlanta with my daughter who's severely handicapped to a camp for people with special needs. He said, on June 28th, as usual, I got to the uh, Southwest Airlines terminal early. I'm always there in front because uh, I've got to load her, her wheelchair, her feeding tubes, all of that's got to be loaded, so I need to be out of the way and they'll more easily load the plane. He said, so I got there at the front of the line, as always, only there was a woman in front of me with two children, one in a stroller. And so I explained to her patiently my situation. I said, then I will need to get on, so if you don't mind, I'll go in front of you. And the woman didn't move. He said, I explained the situation again. He said, you know, I always get here early. They always let me on first because you don't want to have to, you know, other people don't want to have to wait behind me. The woman didn't respond. Finally looked at the woman incredulously. He said, are you kidding? He said, look at my child. I will carry my one child in the wheelchair for your two children, one in a stroller. The woman didn't say anything. And he just huffed behind her. And finally the woman said, look, I'm not going to get into a competition with you. And she moved out of the way. And he moved with the wheelchair, child, feeding tube, everything. They went down the gangway, got his child settled. And as they were going down the gangway, he, he was pretty sure he heard the woman sort of mocking him in derision to other passengers. He went got her seated, got himself seated, and he saw the woman across the aisle and he tried to steal glances at her as if, you know, to stare knives through her. But she didn't look up. 
And he sat there, composed himself, began to pray. And the first thing he thought was, oh, Lord, don't let that be true. Oh, Lord, don't let that be true. So he got up out of his chair, went across the aisle, found the woman. He said, your daughter in a stroller, tell me, does she have a severely handicapping condition? And the woman began to cry. And she said, she know, she said, I know I didn't treat you well. She said, I've been sitting here thinking I should get up and go and apologize to you and explain to you my situation. And together, there were tears. And he said, I realized this as I walked away, understanding her, understanding myself. He said, if all of us would just for a moment get outside of ourselves and go over to the other person. He said, I believe that there would be a lot less room for hatred in our lives. He believes that. I believe it. Do you?